Good evening. It's wonderful to gather together again, both in the morning and the evening, giving God, as I like to say, the first and last word on this day of joy and rest and gladness, and I'm happy to be doing it together with you. Uh, The word that she gives us for this evening comes from Galatians chapter 4. Would you rise out of reverence for God's holy and infallible word? We're looking at Galatians 4, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 7. Please give careful attention to this reading of God's holy and infallible word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then you are an heir through God. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it in such. You may be seated. In the third chapter of the Apostle John's first epistle, he opens up that chapter with this exclamation. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In saying this, John is calling on believers to reflect, to pay attention to the greatness of the fact of God's love, that he loved us in such a way that he calls us even his own children. I wonder how often we here reflect on this reality as we ought. To be children of God. In the broader culture around us, there's this trivialized and misunderstood and incorrect understanding that all people are God's children. Um, This misconception has some basis in the Word of God in that Adam, our father, was created as the Son of God, So it has some basis in truth, but it leaves out the other truth that our father, Adam, fell from his estate of blessedness, and he defaced the image of God, and him and Eve lost that status of sons and daughters of God, so that we all, by nature, are not sons and daughters of God, but we're children of wrath, and we're enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil." Yet I don't think it's just the broader culture who are the ones that trivialize this concept and get things wrong. But I think it also happens in the church and among believers. I know that we pray to God as our Father, and we sing and talk about being sons and daughters of God, and that is wonderful, and we should. But it's one thing to use these terms and intellectually have even a little bit of a grasp of them And that's completely different than letting that reality sink in 
and to change your entire perspective on who you are in God's sight and who you are in Christ. It's more than an intellectual thing. I think we all struggle with this. In fact, I managed to bet that all of us have a daily struggle to view ourselves as sons and daughters of God. I think rather we tend to view ourselves as slaves to God at best, but slaves to our own sins and passions at worst. How do you view your relationship with God? As a slave bound to obey Him out of constrained obligation? Or do you view yourself as a son or daughter who is free and serves Him happily through gratitude and love? How do you view your right standing before God? As a slave who must work diligently to gain favor so as not to get beatings? Or as a free son who has already that favor of his father and knows that he can trust in his father's kind care and instruction? How do you view your ultimate destination and reward from God? As a slave earning his wages or as a free son who will most surely inherit from the father what he has promised? These are the kind of questions that we must ask of ourselves, and depending on how we answer them, we'll get a better understanding of whether we view ourselves as slaves or whether we view ourselves as sons and daughters, regardless of what we sing and confess. How we behave will reflect how we view ourselves in Christ. Well, these are the sorts of questions which the Lord and His providence would have us to ask today through the guidance of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. Today, what we will see is that God the Father has sent forth His Son to redeem us from slavery, so that, we, that He might send forth His Spirit to the end that we might serve Him as sons. That's a mouthful. Put simply, this text shows us that in Christ, God frees us from slavery and He adopts us as sons and daughters. To come to this conclusion and the implications which flow from it, we'll consider this text under two simple headings. First, slavery and sonship, verses 1 through 3. And second, the Son and the Spirit, verses 4 through 7. Slavery and sonship and the Son and the Spirit. Let's look at that first one, slavery and sonship. Recall that in chapter 3, Paul has made a persuasive argument so far that Jesus Christ is the true offspring of Abraham, the seed according to promise, so that anyone, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're united to Him by faith, they are children of Abraham, sons of God, and heirs according to promise. That's the argument he's made so far. And he ends that chapter on that concept of heir. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Paul picks up again on this concept of being an an heir. He, He states, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Recall that in chapter 3, Paul likened the people 
of God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant as a church under age, as we talked about it. As such, it needed a pedagogos or a guardian, that which would go with it in the ancient world to take a child, make sure it got to school and back and had the authority to punish. The people of God, the church of God at that time, was a church under age. So it needed the law as its guardian to punish them where appropriate, but always and ever to point them to their need for Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. In 4.1, Paul comes back to that childhood analogy, but he shifts its orientation, if you notice. Here the focus is not on the child as it needed that pedagogos. Here the focus is on the child as it resides, as an heir in the house. Paul makes that provocative statement. The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Okay, what does Paul mean exactly here? Let's be clear, every analogy breaks down at some level. Paul is not trying to say that the condition of the child is in every way comparable to that of a slave. His point is merely this. All of the household belongs to the child by right, but he does not actually yet possess any of it in actuality. The property has not come to him in his full possession. Also similar to the slave, though, the child is under the oversight and management of others. As he goes on in verse 2 to say, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The words translated here as guardians, and that's actually a different one than pedagogos earlier. It's a little confusing how the ESV translates the same way because it's a different position. But the words translated as guardians and managers here, in this context, they're somewhat synonymous. Uh, it could even be referring to the same person and what he would do in the household. But if there is a distinction, scholars sometimes think that the, the guardians would be those who were in charge of the person of the heir, but the managers were in charge of the property of the heir, all that the father would give to him. In any case, Paul's point is clear. The heir, as long as he remained a child, did not have authority over his own person, and he did not have authority over his own possessions or property. That is Paul's point here. Until the date set by his father, Paul says. Uh, the image here seems to be of a father who has passed away, but he set up a legal will and document which stipulated this certain person to be the guardian over the person of his heir and this person to be the guardian over the property of the heir until the time that the father himself stipulated that he would come into his freedom and he would come into the full possession of his inheritance. This sets Paul up to begin to apply this analogy in verse 3, saying, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. There's a couple things to note here. First, notice that Paul again uses the inclusive language of we, even as he had done in chapter 3, saying that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, chapter 3, verse 13. Or again, when he said, now before faith came, 
We were held captive under the law. We were held captive under the law, including or calling on the Gentiles to identify themselves with the historic people of God because now they are united to that people through their union with Christ. Now Paul is including, again, all Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, in this enslaved analogy. Second, notice what Paul says about this group, both Jews and Gentiles, those who have believed. So were we also when we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here Paul is talking about the state of Israel under the law before Christ and the Gentiles outside of Christ, and he speaks of both states as being in enslavement. But enslavement to what? Paul says to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? The Greek word used here is stichia, and it's notoriously difficult to understand and interpret. In the original meaning, it referred to the, the basic components, the elements of stuff out of, something, out of which something is made, such as the earth. In the ancient world, they thought of the earth as being composed of what? Earth, fire, wind, water, and air. It was also used metaphorically, meaning of organized basic principles, um, as we might say, the ABCs of something. Uh, you might recall the author of Hebrews uses it this way when he says the he refers to the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's the same word being used in Hebrews 5.12 when he's talking about, you have learned these basic oracles, now it's time to move on to maturity. It's time to go past the ABCs. Later, it could be used to refer to the the constellations in the sky. And some scholars believe the supposed powers behind those um, heavenly bodies. But how should we take it here? Well, it's always good to look at how Paul uses words in the rest of his corpus. And he happens to use this exact phrase, even including the of the world, in Colossians 2 twice. In the ESV, which I'm sure many of you have, it's translated there as elemental spirits. That's an interpretive choice that they made. It's the same word. They just thought in that context it was better to say spirits instead of uh, the elementary principles. Uh, Would you actually turn with me to Colossians 2? I think that's a really helpful comparison to this text. In the context of Colossians, Paul is dealing with a false teachers not so much unlike those who are at Galatia. Uh, there were Judaizers there who were also trying to force Sabbath regulations and circumcision. It's a little more complicated than that text because it was kind of a syncretistic faith where they brought Greek elements into the Jewish faith. But there were very much similarities. And both of them were saying the one central thing. Something else was necessary besides the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that context in mind, let's look at Colossians 2, uh, verses 8 through 20. And just some of these things will be different, but try to catch some of the things we've been talking about in Galatians, circumcision, baptism, union with Christ. Try to look for those elements. Okay, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? There are many things that we could talk about here, but for our purposes and understanding our text, I want to draw your attention to four things. First, notice how Paul introduces the concept of elemental spirits or principles of the world in verse 8. And immediately he goes on to talk about the sufficiency of Christ and how our circumcision is spiritually fulfilled in Christ in verses 9 through 11. Very similar to what's going on in Galatians. Second, notice how Paul connects circumcision with baptism just as he did in Galatians 3. 27, and again, that's one of the reasons why we baptize our infants, and I just like to point that out when I can. Third, notice how in Colossians 2.17, he talks about other elements of the Mosaic law and describes them as shadows, whereas Christ is the substance. And finally, bringing all of this together, in verse 20, Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Does that sound familiar? Might be testing you going back a little bit. In Galatians 2, 19 through 20, Paul talked in a very similar way about himself when he said that through the law, he died to the law by being crucified with Christ. So it's no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. If you died with Christ, the elemental spirits, if Paul died to the law with Christ. Tying all that together, I think reading these two texts together, we can say that in Galatians 4.3, Paul seems to be equating the law, abstracted from the person and work of Christ, with the elemental principles of this world. This is because apart from the person and work of Christ, the law and its shadows can only bring a curse. So when Jews who lived under the law and sought to justify themselves through it by their own means, they were enslaving themselves 
again to the rudimental principle and missing the substance of which these principles taught, which was Christ. Going back to the meaning of this in its fundamental sense of the ABCs, we could say that the Jews at that time knew their letters and alphabet, but not how to put them together into the words which showed the gospel. Here, Paul is describing the state of mankind before and outside of Christ. Later on, we'll see that Paul applies this situation of being enslaved to these elemental principles very specifically to the Galatians in their context coming out of pagan worship and idolatry. Here he's setting up for that, and he'll do it, and we'll cover that in the next sermon. But he's also leveling the playing field between Jews and Gentiles. Everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, You and me, outside of Christ, are in slavery to the fundamental principles of this world, to the stuff of this life. For the Jews, this looked like being under the curse of the law because they were not looking for Christ by faith, at least those who were not looking to him by faith, even as Paul is warning against in Galatians. For the Galatians, it looked like pagan worship before they came to know Christ. For those of us in the 21st century, it might look like, to borrow Paul's wording, which he'll use later, beggarly attempts to earn God's favor or achieve fulfillment outside of faith in the person and work of Christ. That's what our being enslaved to the elemental principles of the world looks like are trying to build ourselves up and fulfill ourselves outside of the person and work of Christ. But the good news which Paul is proclaiming is that by faith, we are no longer like slaves, for we are adopted sons and daughters of God. To understand that, let's go to our next and last point. We have just looked at slavery and sonship. Now let's consider the son and the Spirit. As we have noted, Paul has been using a metaphor of a child or an heir who is under age and thus under guardians and managers until the time set and appointed by the father of the child. Paul then applies this specifically to believers, both Jews and Gentiles, before Christ and outside of Christ, with the case being that they are all enslaved to elementary principles. Of the world. That's what we just covered. Now he describes what happened to affect a change in this situation, stating in verse 4 But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. In hearing this, we are to hear an echo of the illustration earlier. The child would not come into his inheritance and enjoy freedom until the time set by the Father. And here Paul says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. Paul is saying that in the sending of the Son, there's something more than just connecting it to this analogy. He's talking about that when God sent forth his Son, there is a definitive point which is reached in redemptive history, which has come according to the eternal counsel of God, which brings the new age into the present by faith. The fullness of time came when God, the eternal Son, came into this earth. 
There's a presupposition in the language of the Son being sent, which we ought not to pass over, in that the Son's preexistence or his eternality is clearly implied. You already exist in order that you can be sent. And that's clearly implied in Paul's words here. And we ought not to miss that. In other words, we are talking about the eternal Son of God sent by the eternal Father to secure for us an eternal adoption and salvation in Christ Jesus. And Paul gives us the manner in which he was sent. Look carefully. He says, he was born of a woman. And then Paul gives us the condition in which he entered. Born under the law. And he also gives us the purpose of which he was sent. To redeem those who were under the law. And then he gives us the result. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And remember that the language of sons is retained because it speaks to the status of Christ which we receive by faith. It's not excluding women or girls. All of us are sons and daughters of God. We receive the title, though, of the Son of God, and all of that means in our inherited goodness that we get. Here now, Paul deviates, though, if you notice, from the illustration which he's been using thus far. Uh, Did you notice that he was talking of a natural-born child who was living as an heir in the household of his father, and he was growing up and coming to age. But now he switches to the language of adoption. I think there's good reason for this. In this regard, for my part, I'm still working this out, but I find it significant that Paul has reserved the language of son in this chapter. He's talked about it before, but in chapter 4, he reserved the language of son until now, in his argument. Until this point, he has used the language of heir, child, children, to make an illustrative point pertaining to the enslavement and the time of freedom and inheritance. The first moment that he mentions son in this chapter comes with a mention of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, and the application of the title of sons to God's people, which comes as a result of the redemption brought by Christ and the adoptive act of God in that. Moreover, notice that Paul uses the language of we, again, in connection with the language of adoption. Neither the Jews or the Gentiles are natural-born sons. Rather, all of God's people are adopted sons in the eternal and only begotten Son of God. Yet in His mercy and by His redeeming blood... The natural-born son, the eternal son, shares his title of sonship with us by adopting us to his father through his shed blood. That is the point which is being made. The title of son is proper only to the eternal son, but in his grace and in his mercy, he sheds his blood, even as we talked about this morning, for us and for our salvation, that we might be brought into the family of God by grace and mercy alone. Having spoken of the sending of the Son, Paul now speaks of the correlating sending of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, 
Abba, Father. Notice there that in this text, it says he has sent the Spirit crying, Abba, Father, in our hearts. In a parallel passage in Romans 8, very similar, and I encourage you throughout the week to read Romans 8 and compare it with Galatians 4. Paul will say in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In the Galatians text, it says that the spirit is crying, Abba, Father. And Romans, it says that we cry through him, Abba, Father. So in Galatians, Paul placed the adoption first, and then the reception of the Spirit of the Son second. Whereas in Romans, he places the reception of the Spirit prior to the reception of sonship. Is he contradicting himself? No. In both cases, he is making the point not to give a chronological or even a a logical ordering of adoption and the sending of the Spirit. In both cases, that's not the point, but rather to emphasize the unity of the work of the Son and the Spirit in the work of adoption and the necessary connection between the reception of the Spirit and our adoption. In both texts, Paul is emphasizing how the Spirit provides assurance that we are sons of God. As he says in Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Underscoring this point is Paul's language of crying out, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, he states that we cry out, Abba, Father, as I said. But in Galatians, he says that it's the Spirit himself crying out through us. It's interesting that in speaking to the Galatian believers, Paul uses the Aramaic word for father, Abba, along with the Greek word for it, pater. One scholar puts it well. It was not enough for them to identify God as father using their native Greek pater. They sought to identify with Jesus' own experience of God and that confident self-knowledge as being not merely God's creature, but God's child, seeking to know and experience God precisely as Jesus knew God and made him known. Do you experience yourself and your knowledge of God and his knowledge of you as a creature of God? Merely? What about as a slave? Jesus came that you would experience a knowledge of God as a father and his knowledge of you as a son and daughter. That's what he came to do, to make that knowledge known, to unite you to himself and to bring you into that Trinitarian union of love and fellowship. So he gives us his spirit, which assures us of this. One thing that I want you not to take away from this sermon, I am not telling you to be a son or daughter of God and do it better. No. I'm telling you that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, however weak your faith is, you are a son and daughter of God and I want you to recognize who you are in Christ Jesus and yes, live out through that. And if you're here tonight, and your faith is weak, 
And you can't put it on your lips, Abba, Father, you have the spirit of adoption in your heart who cries it out for you. He makes those prayers which we cannot make with moaning in our heart. He prays to the Father for us even as Jesus Christ is on high as our elder brother praying and interceding for us. Paul summarizes the argument concisely in verse 7. It's almost syllogistically. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice that Paul again switches from we language, and he directly and emphatically applies his argument to the Galatians saying, so you. The logic is simple with Paul and all other believers, both Jew and Gentile, male and free, slave and free. All of you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sons and daughters of God. And if you are sons, you are necessarily heirs through God, through His promise, to the seed in whom you reside. With these verses, Paul brings his argument for the sonship of the Galatians, begun in the beginning of chapter 3, full circle. When he takes up the topic of sonship again, he's going to be doing it very directly to the Judaizers themselves. In verses, in chapter 3, 2 through 3, he asks the Galatians this simple question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They knew they had begun by the Spirit, and Paul is challenging them on that point. After he first challenged them with this, he went on that extended argument for what constitutes being a son of Abraham, which comes, remember, through being united to Abraham's offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith. And he says the preeminent sign and seal and assurance that you belong to Christ, that you belong to the seed of Abraham, is if you have received the Spirit of God's Son. In other words, Paul is saying, you foolish Galatians, you've begun with the Spirit. You must continue in the Spirit. In the Spirit, you have that God, all that God has to offer of the new covenant promises in the present, and you have Him for the hope of the future and fulfillment to come. As Paul began his argument in the Spirit, now he brings it full circle. There can be nothing more that you could want. And this is where Paul's argument and its application comes home to us as well. We too were once enslaved. But in his infinite goodness, God sent forth the eternal son of his love to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us by his accursed death on the cross. And because of this, God has been pleased to send forth the spirit of his risen and glorious son to dwell in our hearts and to cry out to God as our father, Abba, Father. In bringing this sermon to a close, I'll leave you with the question with which we began. In your relationship with God, fundamentally, do you view yourself as a slave 
or as a son and daughter of God. Don't get me wrong. As as sons and daughters, there's plenty of service for us to do on behalf of our Father. But that's not the question. The question is the spirit in which we do that service and we carry it out. Is it from the mindset of a slave earning his keep or seeking his wages? Or is it from the mindset and standpoint of the gratitude of adopted sons and daughters of God who owe everything we have to the Father, who gave us everything He has in His Son? God spared not His own Son. He sent Him to redeem us from slavery and sent forth His Spirit into our hearts, crying out within us and us through Him those words of our Lord Himself, Abba, Father, whether or not you have ever known Christ or you have known Him and feel distant from Him and dejected now, I encourage you today, receive Christ by faith. Rejoice in His Spirit and rest in the loving embrace of the arms of your Father. This is where you'll find hope. This is where you'll find comfort for your wandering soul. As John said, behold, What manner of love is this the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. John also, in an earlier chapter, gives us an example of what it means to be adopted sons and daughters of God in the Son of God. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that's what I want to say to you with this sermon. Little children, I'm preaching it to you so that you may not sin. But if you feel your disobedience and sin, look to Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our advocate, and our righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, what manner of love is this which you have given to us that we should be called children of God? Abba, Pater, Father, that we can come to you being freed from slavery, still feeling weight of sin battling within us, but knowing that you loved us and that you were so determined to free us from this that you gave the Son of your love to become a curse for us. And that even now in our wayward, struggling ways, you have given us your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength in our own words through your Spirit to cry out to you as Father. But even when we can't even lift these words... I pray that in our spirit, through your spirit, you would cry out, Abba, Father, and assure all of us here today of your kind love and care for us. It's in the name of the eternal, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our elder brother, we pray. Amen.